Thank you very much, Stefan, and thank you to the moderators. Um, I also wanted to thank uh, Amy and Feza, not so much Phil, you know, for the invitation of uh, giving this talk. So this issue of nothing is working, diversion alone, or pouch excision, um, you know, there's some issues that I think were beautifully covered by uh, Feza that I want to approach in a somewhat different way. So that, um, you know, we do have, despite the fact that we have an IBD center, we do have failed pouches. So not all of the failed pouches I take care of come from somewhere else. Some come from me. So I think that when you ask this, this blanket issue of should you divert or should you excise the failed pouch, again, when we're talking about patients who, for whatever reason, do not want or are not offered or redo pouch surgery, it all, I don't think you can answer that question without answering why is the pouch being removed because these are very different situations and the magnitude of the pouch excision and morbidity is very different based on whether the indication is Crohn's disease, anal transition zone, neoplasia, pelvic sepsis, poor function, and rec or recurrent pouchitis because some of them are pretty straightforward, some are pretty challenging. So that one of the things that I always think about um, is, you know, the circular logic that we're always having in IBD surgery is that we say we take a variety of situations, we arbitrarily lump them into some sort of diagnosis, and then we say, okay, now it's this, but you don't do this for that diagnosis, so that's why it's the right thing. So what am I talking about? So here you have a nice patient, you do an ileal pouch, and we say, write every paper we write on restorative proctocolectomy says, Ileal pouch anal anastomosis uh, cures, you know, ulcerative colitis. We do a beautiful pouch. We scope them. They have gorgeous small bowel. They have form stool in the pouch. We're thrilled. And then a year later, they look like this. And we say, oh, oh, no, no, no. That's not recurrent inflammatory bowel disease because we said we did a total proctocolectomy with ileal pouch anal anastomosis. So we say, we, we look at that. That's not inflammatory bowel disease. We say... What should we call it? We'll call it Ralph or Buford or Edgar. We've come up with the term pouchitis so that we don't have to say it's recurrent inflammatory bowel disease. Respectfully, that's recurrent inflammatory bowel disease. And on the other hand, and we say, okay, well, anything bad with the pouch and Drs. Remzi and Shen um, from Cleveland have really taught us this, is that this is a patient of mine who used to come, was a frequent flyer on the helicopter, that nine years after I did his pouch, he starts coming with, I don't know if you can see this well, I'm having trouble doing the point, there it is, you know, that he comes in with this big fat ulcer right in the middle of the pouch nine years later, and he keeps hemorrhaging from it. We threw everything out of it. So what do you call this? Is it Crohn's disease? Is it what? Is it ischemic? What do you want to call it? So I think that we just arbitrarily give these names to things and then justify what we do based on the name that we've given it. So, I mean, I think we would all agree that this guy who's 10 years after his pouch, that's Crohn's disease, right? So with that, I think we can feel pretty comfortable. And all of these people may need their pouch excised, but I think that it really, we treat, don't treat them exactly the same way. And here's a patient, you know, back, back in the day when we were starting to see a few of these perianastomotic um, carcinomas, and you see this is the important point that Dr. Remzi also made in the sense that this patient, um, you know, this is a pouch rectal anastomosis, that it's great that you can do, you can use a laparoscope, but you've got to do the right operation. And this is a patient 
who, akin to the first, who had multifocal dysplasia, including dysplasia in his proximal rectum, and had a pouch rectal anastomosis, and not surprisingly, seven years later, comes to see us with this carcinoma in the rectum. He's got rectal cancer. So anyway, with this issue of pouch excision or pouch diversion, about 10%, if we ballpark, of pouches fail. And I think we need to, um, in making this decision about pouch excision versus pouch diversion, I think we need to honestly say that pouch excision at least can be a very technically uh, demanding operation whereby um, you often have a compartmentalized pouch that's related to pelvic sepsis, and that you're going to have, you know, and in one of these bad pelvic sepsis pouch excisions that's not a straightforward pouch excision, you can get a lot of bleeding during that operation. So that being said, um, I want to highlight some of uh, that also in support of some of Dr. Ramsey's points that uh, Amy made, Leitner made, is that, okay, when she looked at the Mayo experience on pouch excision, i just highlighting some of the larger groups and what this means. So sepsis, 31%, Crohn's disease, 25%. Um, and when you look at this, their pouch excisions, and this is, I would argue, is a good outcome. I think my um, complication rate, overall things considered, is probably higher than 57%, you know, for pouch excisions when wound infections, everything is counted that here you can see that even at an expert uh, high-volume institution, the complication rate was uh, 57%, including 11% that needed to go back to the operating room three times for missed enterotomies. The St. Mark's, no, really no different, 53% late complications from pouch excision, including one death. Half of the patients got readmitted. And uh, importantly, and especially when you think of that patient with the perineum, the multiple fistulas, 40% of all of their perineal wounds after pouch excision were unhealed at six months. Cleveland Clinic, Florida, 47 patients. Again, and, and, and again, when you think about the indications, I would respectfully ask you to think, what does this mean? Okay, 36% of the pouch excisions for sepsis. 44% of the largest cohort was for pouch dysfunction. I don't know what that means, you know, pouch dysfunction. So it's hard to compare 10% for re- refractory pouchitis and 8% for neoplasm. So that in their, situ, in their complications were as follows. For pouch excision, about 30% of patients had perineal wound complications, um, such as a soft tissue infection, chronic sinuses, or perineal hernia. And importantly, back to what I was saying as we lump all these patients together, that, you know, the patients who need pouch excision, who have perineal wound complications with preoperative sepsis, those are the ones who are highly likely to end up with an unhealed perineal wound. Um, Cleveland Clinic Cleveland, um, this is a paper uh, from a few years ago, 110 patients of pouch excisions that uh, in terms of this perineal healing, that again, 40% of pouch excisions ended up with an unhealed perineal sinus, and 20% in long-term follow-up remained unhealed. So to that end, or at least in some of these patients, the idea of diversion alone is, you know, has some attraction to it that I find that there's no chance I'm ever going to injure any pelvic nerves if I don't dissect in the pelvis. 
so that um, there's certainly going to be lower morbidity for simple diversion. I think we could all agree that a large percentage of them can be done pretty straightforward manner with laparoscopy. But on the other hand, if you leave the pouch in the transition zone, you have to worry about, and again, we can stratify risk or the risk of neoplasia. And also, I think it's fair to say in terms of conclusion that um, there will be an inferior quality of life uh, in most patients, that in other words, diversion does not afford the same quality of life as pouch excision, and I'm going to show that in just a moment. So looking at this, uh, Ravi Karan, when he was uh, at Cleveland, um, looked at 136 patients with failed pouches, and they did 105 of them had pouches excised, and 31 are diverted. Now again, I think we have to highlight this issue of selection, because I think we all have an idea of what those 31 patients who were diverted alone probably looked like, um, and what they, why though it was chosen to divert them rather than excise the pouch. So not surprisingly, there was a trend to use diversion in patients with pouch sepsis. And again, highly selected, so I think selection bias plays a major role in this, but when you look at overall complication rates, no difference in surgical site infection, abscess, or bowel obstruction. This data is hard for me to um, get my hands around that urinary and sexual dysfunction was similar. You know, I find it, you know, that would surprise me that just diverting causes the same incidence of sexual dysfunction as pouch excision. Um, that importantly, and this is important, is that diverted patients do have ongoing morbidity related to perhaps anal pain, but seepage, and it's a nuisance, and they don't get normal. I would argue, we can maybe discuss this on the panel, but I think that when you simply divert them, they tend to have discharge and drainage from the, from the bad pouch, and I think that's bothersome and always makes them not feel normal. And again, we're talking about a cohort of patients who, for one reason or another, does not wish or is not suitable for redo pouch surgery. And importantly, there was no incidences of development of neoplasia when the pouch was left in situ. Um, when you look at, they thoughtfully did an analysis of quality of life with a median follow-up of 10 years, overall quality of life. Uh, this is, again, the Cleveland Clinic data health quality, the Cleveland Clinic Global Quality of Life Scale, and the SF12 Mental and Physical, that all of these scores, meaning higher is good, were higher in the pouch excision. So I think that assuming a patient gets through a pouch excision, at least without an unhealed perineal wound, that they're going to have a higher quality of life with pouch excision than with pouch diversion. And I want to highlight um, some of the points that, um, and to provide some data to support Dr. Ramsey, in that, you know, we talk about that Crohn's disease that is, oh, it's 2 to 13% of pouch patients that we do with ulcerative colitis turnout have Crohn's disease. But to me, when somebody, when I get referred a patient with Crohn's disease of the pouch, I feel it's like seeing a patient where somebody says, you, I'm sending you someone with a hemorrhoid. I don't know what they mean. Like, are you going to say they're itching, they have a lump, you know, they're bleeding? Like, what exactly do you mean by Crohn's disease of the pouch? So I would argue that, to me, Crohn's disease of the pouch means that the patient had total proctocolectomy with ileal pouch anal anastomosis, and it didn't work, and it's not going very well for the patient. Anything beyond that, and I, I know Dr. Ramsey highlighted this, and I think it bears repeating, it's all about the history. So I think what we tend to do is, and I'm going to show you data from our institution as well that highlights this, 
is that we tend to say, if Dr. Fakera did the pouch, it's a technical complication. If I did it, it's Crohn's disease. And that's not a rational way to triage patients. So when we say, is it really Crohn's disease or the pouch, you know, that you have to realize the pouch can look rotten for other reasons, for recurrent pouchitis or ischemia, that stricture is often a technical complication. You know, what I always say, the three major reasons you get complications for the pouch anal anastomosis is you have to think about tension on the anastomosis. If it's not tension on the anastomosis, consider tension. And if it's not tension or tension, think tension. And so anyway, uh, also, is there a fistula? Is it a really Crohn's disease? You're really going to blame Crohn's disease for that fistula that happened in the recovery room? I don't really think they developed (laughs) Crohn's disease on the stretcher. So anyway, that being said, and Amy highlighted this beautifully in that when she looked at um, pouch excisions in that subgroup from that large series of patients who had uh, Crohn's disease, that had were labeled as Crohn's disease of the pouch, only 20% of 7 of the 35 had histologic evidence of Crohn's disease in the pouch. And the remaining 28, um, 40% had a leak, um, and 80, you know, 80, 80, 24 of that 28 had, quote, pouch dysfunction, whatever that means, within five months of ileostomy closure. So these are, again, to, to reinforce Dr. Remsey's point, these are all patients who had complications of surgery. They don't have Crohn's disease. And this is just to say, okay, well, this is someone else's data. That's Mayo. Um, what this is is, is uh, Phil Sosenheimer, is one of our medical students, looked at our pouchograms. And one interesting thing that we found out is that when we looked at our pouches that went south that, uh, that had an abnormal pouchogram that, that didn't do well, that had a pouch excision, that cohort, every one of them by one year, their chart started saying they had Crohn's disease of the pouch. So in our institution, every patient with a proven anastomotic leak as they percolate and intercalate through the system will ultimately get ascribed as having Crohn's disease. So um, from my perspective, um, this issue of pouch excision versus um, diversion, I think selection is really the key, that we shouldn't underestimate the uh, detriment to quality of life and body self-image of continued seepage from a uh, septic pouch. Neoplasia is a concern. And to me, I think for the ones with pelvic sepsis, which I think is that's the subgroup where you really can make a reasonable case to divert rather than excise the pouch, it's really a trade-off from, say, their chronic fistula and the low-output fistula versus the high likelihood of ending, or not likelihood, high likelihood, but likelihood of ending up with an unhealed perineal wound and need to wear a pad after pouch excision that, again, there's certainly no group that's more expert um, than the Cleveland group with respect to this, but when you look at their pouch excision, their estimated blood loss, the average estimated blood loss was about 800 cc's, you know, in pouch excision. One other thing that I always think about is that often we give patients, when we divert them, you know, we'll give them one, a lousy flush loop ileostomy, and I think that you, that's another issue, is sometimes some of the things that we blame on diversion with poor quality of life, it's because of a poor stoma. It's not inherent in the technique. I think we have to maybe think about doing more end loops 
um, that uh, selection bias exists in the literature and that bad cases tend to get diverted rather than the pouch excision. And I have no data to support this, but it won't bother me from making this conclusion anyway. But I think that male sexual function has to be better with diversion. And so, you know, some of the patients who need pouch excision, if they're young men, sometimes I will divert them with the idea that I'm deferring pouch excision to a later date. Um, that um, often, I think, again, the ones with pelvic sepsis, I would argue that you have to consider staging them. Sometimes diverting them first um, and resecting them later is a good thing to do. That we'll usually do intersphincteric dissection if there's no perineal sepsis. And we're with an extrasphincteric dissection if there's fistulizing disease. Um, that um, And my final recommendations were that I would advocate pouch excision Obviously, if anal transition zone cancer is suspected, I think that young patients, um, you're going to need to excise their pouch, um, either in a stage manner or in one, one felt swoop, and that I personally do think that diversion for a lot of the older patients um, is, is certainly um, appropriate. 